I'm telling you, these people are Satanists. As I sit here, they are Satanists. Nothing will stop the Satanic total release. Bart, stop testing Satan. Welcome to the place where we are so sick of the question, why Satan? We named a podcast after it. Welcome, everyone, and thank you once again for joining me. Now, before we get on to the show, I need to talk about a few minor things. First off, soon it's going to be coming up on renewing my email address for the domain. I'm not going to be doing that since they increased the price on me to an unreasonable amount. So I'm moving to a free email at Gmail. So this email will be ysatan666 at gmail.com. Now, that's the email I'm going to be using if you need to send me anything. At least for now, I might come up with a better email or not. That's probably what I'm going to stay with for now, however. however. Now, the second thing that I want to discuss on Twitter, I did mention that I may not always do a podcast every week. And the reason for that is things can get a little busy. I do this, honestly, basically kind of a hobby and because I like it and people enjoy it. Sometimes I get really busy, and I can't always get to the prep that I like, and I don't want to go into it with zero prep. And some days, in some weeks, I'm not able to have prep because I'm super busy. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to do every week when I'm able to. If I'm not, if you don't see a show up by Friday, or it mostly the show is always going to be up by at least Thursday, like Right now, I'm running low because, or I'm running slow, excuse me, on recording. I'm currently recording at 2 a.m. on Wednesday. I'm finishing everything up. And the reason for that is I had a few little problems in where I record my room. Um, While I was recording, a light fell, and I had to fix that, and a whole big mess that you probably don't care about. But normally, if something's not up by the afternoon on Thursday... I might not have been able to get to a show that week. If I know in advance I'm not going to be able to do a show the week before, I'll try to let everyone know. I will always let people know if there's not going to be a show on Twitter. I'm going to try to actually pin from now on if I don't think I'm going to have a show that week. I'm going to be honest, I'm probably not going to remember it, but I'll try. And so those are the announcements that I can think of. I I can't think of anything else. Now... What we're going to talk about on today's show is this. The first thing we're going to talk about is an article by Ray Comfort that I stumbled on. And I thought it was really bad because I I read the first bit of it and I got really angry. And then I finished reading it and got super angry. And then I told Rayla about it and she got really angry and really confused. So I had to record something on it. And she said that she's going to listen to what I recorded and if there's a few things that I didn't touch on that she thinks should have been touched on. She's going to add her two cents. Then after that is a palate cleanser. We're going to get back into introduction to romantic Satanism. We are covering chapter two, which is interesting. And there's a part of it, which I really don't understand. So when I get to that part, if you know what the hell Edmund Burke is trying to explain in the paragraph, please let me know. Because I don't understand what in the world he was talking about when it comes to Sublime. Then, for the last segment, because the segments were kind of big this week, I found an article about someone who's telling teachers what they should do. 
And one of them is where body cams. I found this article in the Friendly Atheist, and um, there's a whole lot wrong about that. Some things even Hemet Meta didn't even get, so I'm going to get into that. That's what we have in store today. So let's get moving on because it's really late and I'd like to go to bed at some point because I still got to do a little bit of editing and then I get upload and make sure the show... No- yeah, just let's move on. Let me not rant anymore and just move on so I can get some sleep eventually. Woo! Are you listening? Bring it in! Come on! Fuck these people! Fuck these people! Yes! Demon babies. Evil spawn. These are the type of things you think about in horror movies. However... To rate comfort, they're just normal children. I stumbled across an article by chance called Face It, Children Are Evil by Ray Comfort. And maybe it was because my enrage gauge wasn't filled up this week that I felt I need to read this. I need to see what he's babbling on about. I'll be honest, nothing actually prepared me for what I was going to get into. I expected something along the lines of, well, children are evil because we're all evil. Blah, 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 bring them into the light of Christ, you have to raise them right, blah, 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 blah. Show them the face of the Lord, or whatever you have like that. That's what I was expecting. I mean, as destructive as that is, and that is in there, but that's not the only thing that's in there. Like, I saw this article and went, oh, okay, something I can talk about in the podcast. Oh, boy, I I I found a lot in this article. First, right off the bat, we get into sexism. And my worries that will be confirmed later on, that Ray Comfort shouldn't be allowed kids ever, never mind having them in his care. First off, he feels that dads find babies are boring, that their babies are boring, all babies are boring, because they're not real humans, which on that I have to ask, do these people believe that babies are magical? Do they believe that before birth, they're real human beings that need to be protected through the government. Once they're born, they're no longer human. And after a while, they become human again. They are the magical transforming babies. I'm, I'm going to say I may joke a little bit during this segment talking about this article and have a little fun with it. That's because this article gets dark fast. And that's a warning. But no, babies aren't interesting to dads until they can smile and talk. Things like that. So, infants are what we're talking about. Infants is what he's talking about here. Put a pin in that, that he's talking about infants. Remember that, that is key. So we continue with the sexism, that men, they're just not wired to care about babies. That if you give a baby to a man and expect them to hold it, they're just going to be awkward. You know, like giving a woman an axe and telling her to go chop down a tree. Ray, Ray, let, let me level with you here, buddy. I'm not the peak of human fitness, but I'm still going to tell you, I've seen pictures of you, and please don't, for the sake of your own sanity, put your self-worth in a basket that you clearly can't hurdle. Wow, I mix metaphors, they're really bad. But, (laughs) trust me, I've seen you, you're not chopping down any trees. So trust me, don't put your self-worth into an idea that you're wired to chop down trees, because you're not chopping down a damn tree, my friend. Of course, after talking about how men are wired to chop down trees and not hold babies, and women are wired to hold babies and not chop down trees, and apparently not sweat, of course, now we have to start insulting babies by noting that they're all ugly, 
babies are just ugly. And the only reason why we put up with their ugliness is that we have some sort of love blindness that keeps parents from seeing how hideous their child is. Again, Ray, don't start insulting looks of babies, because, my friend, looking at you, you look like a Jeff Foxworthy knockoff. So don't be insulting people's looks, because uh, we can have a go at you all day. But in all serious, we move on to him explaining that babies steal from their parents. They steal food, sleep, money, and everything that goes into those damn freeloaders. And while normally when you hear about babies stealing sleep, you think, oh, it's just someone talking about how it's so hard for the parents to get sleep, or how much money it costs to raise a child, or how much food they eat. But no, seeing as Ray Comfort likes to do his on-the-street thing, saying, hey, have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever had lust in your heart? Have you blah, blah, Well, that makes you a sinner. That makes you an idolatrist, or whatever. And seeing the subject matters he brings up later on, I'm going to assume he actually means that babies are actually stealing things in a way that's sinful. That they're actually stealing from their parents. He also hates babies as out of nowhere he decides to comment that he never realized how ugly his own kids were until he looked at pictures now that they're grown up. So we're going back to insulting looks of babies. Don't worry We're moving on to a subject that if there was any actual true justice in the world, Child Protective Services would be taking a battering ram to Ray Comfort's house as we speak. As we now learn that this article isn't about ugly babies. Oh, no, no. Even though we we could have been mistaken for that up to this point. But no, now we get into it. He talks about how if you tell your infant no... They can become rebellious and do the back arch. First, I'm I'm not joking about the rebellious thing. That is actually the wording he uses. Second, we're going to pull that pin and remember, he's talking about infants. We're at a stage they can't communicate, nor do they really have an understanding about what the fuck is going on around them. At this age, if you hide their teddy bear... They do not understand that the teddy bear still exists. They think the teddy bear has gone off into nothingness. They don't have object permanence. Keep that in mind because he states, and I'm quoting here, that this back arching is the first sign of infantile rebellion. Now, him saying this tells me that there's only one person being talked about in this article that's infantile. And it's not the infant. As I said, it's become clear that he should not be alone in the room with a child. And he should never have any, you know, custody of a child at all. Again, he states, because he has to make it worse, that if not dealt with, the seed will grow into a monster and destroy everything in its path. Deal with. We're talking about a child so young that their self-awareness is so basic, they scare themselves when they pass gas. I've been around infants. Dogs are smarter than infants. Science shows and tells us that dogs are smarter than infants. So the downward spiral continues as Ray Comfort makes it even more obvious that he, if he has a child, I don't know, he should be locked up for abuse. As he tells the godly parent... 
that they must battle this monster until it is destroyed. And yes, those are the words he uses. But no, you can't be mad at Ray Comfort, he says, because these are not his words. These are God's words. So, um, I guess he's saying this isn't my problem. Talk to my manager, basically. So, how should we deal with this evil devil child who arches their back in ways that will bring ruin and destruction to all, much like the ring from the age-old story of Lord of the Rings that we must throw into Mount Doom? How shall we stop this horrible, horrible rebellion of the infants? We'll see. Ray Comfort tells us. He tells us the rod. Yes, yes. You take that baby who hasn't fully developed yet, whose body is still so delicate that in the first year they can't have honey because it might give them botulism. You must hit that baby. Beat that baby. Yes, hit a baby who won't ever understand why the hell you're hitting it. This is the same form of human development that lacks, as I said, object permanence. It surely will understand why you're hitting it and understand that you don't hate it, that you're just trying to instill the idea and fear of God into this child. I'm sure it's going to love you for its entire life after this. There is no way it would develop a fear towards you. There's no way that when it sees you, it will start to cry after you've taken this baby who does not understand where they are, what they're doing, or anything that's going on around them. Because again, this is an infant child and just beat the crap out of them, I guess, with a, like, a rod. Like, sure, that's gonna work well. But of course, Ray explains that the reason this has to be done is that a child, like all people, has the evil seed of Adam within it. And the only way to stop this seed growing is to use physical violence to crush any individualism that parent doesn't approve of out of them before they can talk. Or as Ray puts it, they must learn to fear God. Love God? Ha! No, this infant must learn fear. They must learn to fear God. Because they're evil, and um, if they become a evil teen they're lost to evil so we must beat the ever-loving shit i mean we must beat the evil out of them so basically he's telling you as i said before you you take an undeveloped human who depends on you for everything and you get it to fear you fear pain from you for reasons they don't understand that's the most fucked up shit i have ever read in my entire life there is only one monster in this article, and they're named Ray Comfort. This is torture. Like, beating the crap out of people for seemingly no reason, and they don't understand why? Just like walking in a room, beating the crap out of someone and leaving. That is a form of torture. We don't allow that. And he believes that this is God's words. He, God's word. He actually says... God's word says there is none good. Not one. Your child isn't good. He is like the rest of us. His heart is evil. How do you live with your child when you look at them that way? Like, seriously, how do you have compassion for anybody when you view the world that way at all? Maybe I'm trying, maybe I'm starting to understand why they don't seem to have compassion at all. 
be, because they think this way. They, they think people are evil and undeserving of compassion. Like, he, he pushes this and compares all children to Jeffrey Dahmer. And I am not kidding because he says that Jeffrey Dahmer said, when I was a kid, I was just like everyone else. No, Ray. That doesn't mean that all kids are fucking Jeffrey Dahmer. It means that given the right circumstances, all kids can be formed into Jeffrey Dahmer. And let's not forget, that came out of the mouth of Jeffrey Dahmer, who was Jeffrey Dahmer, so we probably shouldn't believe shit that comes out of the mouth of Jeffrey Dahmer. Again, fuck you, Ray. He also goes on on this unfounded accusation that children are naturally drawn to harming animals. I have not really seen a child that maliciously harms an animal. I've not experienced it. I, I've seen children who want to play with the animal and do not understand that they can hurt the animal. I, I've seen that. Like They want to pick up the animal and love it and cuddle it and play with it. And they get too excited, and sometimes, like, they, they'll, like, especially, like, I've seen it with a cat, like, and a kid will, like, grab the cat on the back, and they'll go so excited of because of the kitty, they will start shaking their hands, and the cat will not like this. But I haven't seen a child maliciously just abuse a child. And not only does he, like, drill down on the child's are evil, he tells parents that unless they're going to basically beat their fucking infants that they're sentencing them to burn in hell. Like, I'm not joking. That's not an understatement. He doesn't use the word beating, but he says if you don't put the fear of God in them, which really means the fear of you and the fear of you causing them pain, that they're going to hell. So yes, he's saying beat your child or they will go to hell. And I, I, I can't even explain like how to make this worse but i'm going to make it worse because i decided to do some reading on the whole back arching thing and apparently it's not just temper tantrums that can be back arching it it can be a sign of pain like gas pain like their stomach hurts they're they're trying to get away from the pain so they're arching away from the pain or their back hurts and they don't know what to do or maybe something like arching in the back, like when babies are not crying, can be something serious, like cerebral palsy. So you're telling people, you know, if if your child arches their back, they're rebelling against you and you should hit them. But fuck you, Ray. Just fuck you. I mean, yes, the the most common reason a baby cries and arches their back is they're having a temper tantrum or they're upset. But the reason why they're upset is they can't communicate. I bet you, if I took great comfort, and I somehow humanely, not sure how to do that, but let, let's say I somehow humanely took away his ability to communicate whatsoever, I bet you he'd be angry. 100%, he'd be angry, and he'd throw a little pissy fit, and he'd freak the fuck out, and he'd get angry, and he'd squirm all around and arch his fucking back. The lack of the ability to communicate, I'll be honest, when working with special needs kids, it's the most common source of anger with them. And it's it's not like we hit them to deal with it. It's, you know, not on the list of solutions we have, Ray. We do not hit children. We do not hit special needs children because they can't communicate. 
I'm going to talk to you about a child. I'm going to leave out very little details because that's me being responsible. So I've dealt with a special needs child. He was really violent. And, well, he could be really violent. And it was often the case. It'd be, he'd be violent daily. He'd spit. He'd scratch. He'd try to bite. But it's unclear if he actually wanted to bite because he'd basically broadcast it. He'd open up his mouth super wide and go, ah, and basically lunge at you. Um... But a lot of it came down to he wanted something. He wanted to do something, and he couldn't communicate. And he didn't understand why he couldn't do a thing. Like, one of his things is he, he liked going to walk for walks. So we'd take him for a walk down the hallway. And the problem with taking him for walks is sometimes he'd see people in a classroom, and he'd want to go talk to them or just not talk. He, he really couldn't talk, but he'd want to interact with them. So we'd go in there and try to go, but we couldn't just let him walk into a classroom, so it turned to a fight. There are also some girls who, and he's becoming an adult, he's going through puberty. There were some girls that he would fixate on, and he'd really fixate on them, and sometimes he'd become violent towards them, because he didn't understand what like he was feeling. He just felt like, I look at them, I feel funny. I don't like this. I need to hurt them because they're they're bothering me. It's like he didn't understand what he was dealing with, and he had no way to communicate with us, so he couldn't explain. He couldn't ask for help in a way we could understand, and so he'd get violent. Now think about like that in a baby. That's what's happening with an infant. They can't communicate. They don't know what's going on. They don't know why you want them to do what you want them to do. They don't understand why they can't touch the stove. It's a thing. It, it's there. It's made to be touched. And it, made to, it makes a thunk, thunk, thunk noise when they touch it because the thin metal inside, it makes a fun noise. So they want to touch it. And they want to bang it and bop it. But yeah, it's, like, it, it's very similar. It's, you, you, don't, you don't hit special needs children because they're having a temper tantrum. The same way you don't hit an infant because they're having a temper tantrum. Ray, I'll be honest. I think hitting any child is horrible, but at least, like, I can put my mind in the mindset of someone who thinks hitting a child who understands that might be a way to make them stop. But hitting an infant, Ray, fuck you. In one of the few times I'm ever going to say this, if someone punches you, I'm going to laugh my ass off. And normally I don't say something like that because I was worried that someone might think I'm encouraging someone to punch somebody. But I don't give a fuck. I'm not encouraging anyone to punch Ray Comfort. But if someone did, I wouldn't even shed a tear. Because fuck you, Ray. So let's restart our delve into the book Introduction to Romantic Satanism. Now, we're moving on to chapter two, which is more background and more information. The first thing we talk about in this chapter is romanticism itself. Not romantic Satanism, but romanticism, the general genre of romanticism. And at its core, it talks a lot about imagination and emotion over reason, nature over urbanization, and supernaturalism over science. And when I was first reading this, I was thinking, this is very different from what we know of modern Satanism and even romantic Satanism itself. 
the the seems very different, almost so different that it's weird they share the same name. But continuing reading, it talks about other aspects of romantic Satanism. Well, romanticism, not romantic Satanism, but talks about romanticism. That much of the values in romanticism are individualism, freedom over conventions, and strong-willed heroes whose eccentricities and transgression and transgressions against norms isolate themselves from society. Now, these heroes are a lot more introspective, deeply so, rather than blind action and rushing into things, is in the classic hero who is always pushing forward and moving forward and being a man of action. The romantic hero tends to be more laid back. They're more introspective. They, they think about things more. They lack a lot of what makes a classic hero a hero, at least in the eyes of more classic literature. Even when they're being heroic, when they're doing things in a heroic manner. And as the book notes, the satanic hero is often an even more darker version of this. They have transgressed darker. They've broken more conventions. And they've, in many cases, are Satan themselves, which we'll get into. Now, that's closer to what I expected when thinking about Satanism and Romantic Satanism, and it makes sense that Romantic Satanism did come out of that, as a lot of bucking against conventions is a big thing within modern Satanism and Satanism itself, and feeling as if others view you as having crossed transgression is another big part of Satanism, fighting against norms that people believe that you have broken. And this seems even more to the extreme in people who are Satanists who come from minority groups or LGBTQ groups. And so this aspect of Romanticism felt much more in line with later Romantic Satanism to me than the previous explanation of themes. Now, I'll be honest, the Edmund Burke section where he explains what sublime was went over my head or maybe it wasn't well written. I feeling it more just went over my head because I feel lost in the explanation. I felt like it went in circles a few times. And if anyone out there can explain this to me and send it to me, please explain it to me as if I'm five and I greatly appreciate it. Now I did get a bit out of this section and I do now understand why a lot of the writing from this period is not something that jives with me a lot. Not the subject matter, but the writing itself, where, where I skip a lot of paragraphs that I feel are needlessly and painlessly, not painlessly, painfully detailed, where we'll just focus on someone's family tree for a while, or we'll go into very large prose, and we'll get very detailed on things meant to convey emotion. And that is something that is brought up by Edmund Burke, that this bringing about of feeling of emotion and even sometimes terror and despair can be a bit much of the genre, which again is why I found some of the books of this period a trudge, at least for me. Now, finally, we get into something we recognize a bit more, which is Paradise Lost. And it's honestly, in the minds of many, 
the most well-known example of romantic Satanism. While it may not be the first, it's the most well-known and causes the most stir, as it greatly inverted the usage of Satan into that of the classic romantic hero, and thus becoming the romantic satanic hero. And looking at that, you can kind of see like all this like stuff we've talked about so far in this book, where we can kind of look at Paradise Lost as everything sort of coming together. The revolutions and the feeling of being like pushed down and looking at the entire history that came before the Romantic Satanism movement. We can look at all that and just, we can see it in Paradise Lost. Looking at Paradise Lost and thinking about the failed French Revolution, or at least the French Revolution that collapsed in on itself, we can find parallels in the start of Paradise Lost on just a failed revolution and how people were wondering if things would ever get to the point that they wanted them to get to, or if it had failed and there was not much they could do about it. Now, this chapter doesn't actually get into that. It just briefly mentions Paradise Lost as being something that came out of this and one of the better examples of Romantic Satanism. But I wouldn't be surprised if the next chapter, which I did see the title of that is more directly tied to Paradise Lost, hits on these points. So it's been a while since I've read this book, so I'm really going to be interested in finding out if I'm actually spot on, if I'm actually remembering something or not. But the rest of the chapter, we get into Romantic Satanism proper, which is probably why they mentioned Paradise Lost, and we start getting into the themes that are heavy in Romantic Satanism. The themes that are touched on, and they talk a little bit about, are reinterpretation, inversion, revolution, and redemption, oh, and normalization. Now, in modern Satanism, we can see a lot of these. We can see reinterpretation. A good example of reinterpretation is reinterpreting what the Garden of Eden was. It wasn't this paradise, romantic Satanism would say. It's being reinterpreted as this place that people are being kept and they're being basically imprisoned, if we're going to be honest. Like, they're being kept ignorant and they're not being allowed to think for themselves. Now, in version, this is Satan. We take this villainous character that's supposed to be in the Bible, where he's intended to be a villain and we're not supposed to root for him, we're supposed to root for God. We're inverting that completely where... Satan is now the romantic hero facing this insurmountable or seeming insurmountable omnipresent horrible villain that is God. And then revolution, well, revolution is already there, especially when you take the idea of the revolution in heaven, the revolution of the angels in revolt of the angels, the idea that these angels are trying to overthrow God, but in this revolution, we're seeing them not as horrible, demonic, evil people who want to have this revolution overthrow God in order to oppress and destroy. We're seeing them as revolutionaries who want to uphold values and want to make things better for people. And then we have normalization. Notice I skipped one, but we'll get back to that. We have normalization, which is making Satan more human, depicting him as human, not really depicting him as this big monstrous beast, but someone who's more like us, someone who thinks like us, someone who is closer to who we are. 
and just someone who's not as monstrous. Granted, modern Satanism is kind of stepped away from that. A lot of things in modern Satanism we've kind of reinterpreted as more of the classic demon Satan in some ways. A very good example, even though it's not Satan, would be how we have the Baphomet, where that is not normalized at all. It looks very non-human. It looks not like something you would think of as something we'd identify with as humans. It is not normalized. So there is some normalization still in modern Satanism, but we do not have it as much. Now, the one aspect that we do not have in modern Satanism, as far as I can tell, is redemption. And that is completely fallen by the wayside in modern Satanism. What redemption is, it is a theme centered around the redemption of Satan. It is a theme that either redeems Satan in the eyes of God or the more Christian reader Sometimes in this theme, there is a reconciliation between Satan and God. Sometimes, sometimes in this, Jesus will replace God, or God and Jesus will both find reconciliation with Satan. But as we've said, we, we don't see that in modern Satanism. Th this theme is not there in the way we interpret it. As God has become a tyrant, he is an unredeemable villain, who Satan doesn't need to agree with and doesn't need to reconcile with. Or there's some cases that God's kind of been thrown out of the picture of modern Satanism. We, we don't even talk about him. A good version of the unreconcilable villain would be Revolt of the Angels, where he is not redeemable. He is just a horrible person. And there are other things that Romantic Satanism likes to touch on as well, which we will also get into in this chapter. Three themes that tend to be linked together is the creation, the fall of humanity, and the serpent, which is a popular idea that the serpent is Satan in many of these stories, as it was the popular interpretation by many Christians. However, oddly enough, the book points out something that we've talked about before, that in nowhere in the Bible does it actually say the serpent is Satan. In fact, there were even Christian deconstructionists in the 18th century who pointed out this disconnect, noting that it puts holes in not only the fall story and the creation myth, it outright ruins the original sin idea because you have this powerful being who is putting their influence on these people in making them sin. That could be one interpretation, or you just have a snake who God created, and if it's not Satan, then God allowed the snake in there who's trying to corrupt people who are easily corruptible. Just a very interesting take by the Christian deconstructionists. Another important theme, which is really funny, because it isn't found in the Bible at all, other than a one really sketchy book, which we've talked about before, is The Fall of the Angels. The only real place that the Bible mentioned this is in Revelation. And we've noted on this podcast before that it is a dubious book, even for the Bible. It almost didn't make it into canon, and there are even some sects today that don't even include it. 
We also see some sighting in Isaiah 14.22, talking about the fall of Morningstar, or the fall of Lucifer. However, as I've noted before, when we've talked about this in my own research, and listening to others who know way more than me, a lot of scholars seem to have the impression that it's not actually Lucifer or Satan that's being talked about here. It's actually a king who was known as the Morningstar. And I believe it might be an Ottoman king that was mentioned, or maybe it was a Persian king. I'm not too sure. I don't want to say for sure because I, I don't know off the cuff. In Romantic Satanism, also another thing that the book mentions is Zodiastrianism, which isn't really something I, I've seen in Romantic Satanism, but there's a lot of Romantic Satanism out there. And it points out that as Zodiastrianism was the world's first monotheistic religion, it had a heavy influence on Judaism, as it's believed that Judaism, as much as they'll disagree with you, wasn't always monotheistic, and this religion may have been part of the source for that, as Zoroastrianism gained popularity. The root of Judaism may have seen that this is popular and sort of took on some of the ideas. There's also some taking from of other ideas of Zoroastrianism. I didn't know this. Apparently, Zoroastrianism had a heaven and hell. And they were also big on a judgment day, which, again, we, we see in Christianity more heavily than Judaism. Judaism, there is talk about some sort of judgment day with the Messiah that's supposed to come, but it's not as heavy as the judgment day and the heaven and hell influence as Christianity. Now, the big one that's been talked about before in Romantic Satanism, and we see it a bunch of places. We see it in some of the bigger ones, like uh, Revolt of the Angels and Paradise Lost, is the movement of Gnosticism. And it's a big one in Romantic Satanism. It's the idea at its core that the world wasn't created by some all-powerful, all-merciful God, but an evil demiurge, which is a word we've seen before, especially in Revolt of the Angels. Revolt of the Angels uses the word demiurge pretty much any time they're talking about God. They don't call him God. At least the angels don't. They call him this demiurge, who they're not even sure created the world in the first place. In Revolt of the Angels, the angels aren't even sure what God has done. There are some who seem to think that maybe the world had existed and he sort of took credit for it. And... In Gnosticism, they believe that the Demiurge trapped divinity inside matter. And so all of us have a spark of divinity trapped inside of us, waiting to get free. They believe the Garden of Eden wasn't a paradise. They believe it's a prison, and humanity was trapped inside of it until the serpent helped lift humanity out of their bondage and ignorance. That seems really familiar. We can see that in a lot of different romantic Satanism ideas. We see it in modern Satanism, the idea that Satan helped free us from the garden of ignorance and uh, unscientific thought and bondage and being uh, bound. It's right there. Like Gnosticism is a big root in, in romantic Satanism and Satanism in general. And the church hated it. Like, like, the church hunted down the Gnostics. They really didn't like them. The early church did. That They hated the Gnostics. 
Uh, there's a lot of Gnostic scripts that we don't have anymore because the church went to very strong extents to destroy them all. And I'm just kind of curious, what would have happened if the Gnostics won? Like, if, if that would have been an interesting religion? Yeah, I, I'd be curious. Like, I wouldn't be a Gnostic because they, they still believe in all the supernatural stuff, which I don't. But to be honest, the Gnostic point of view makes a fuck lot more sense that God is just an evil asshole who we need to be free of. That makes a lot more sense. The last thing that the book touches on is a subject that I don't know anything about. It's called uh, Mencheniism, I think is how it's pronounced. And I honestly, this is not one I've heard before. Uh, it was apparently comes from a Persian prophet named Mani in the 3rd century. Uh, they say it's a religion about dualism in the synthesis of Christian Gnosticism and they say pagan ideas with the idea that there's an evil material world in a spiritual world of light. And I don't know anything else about it. That They don't say anything. I, I've never heard of this before. I've never heard, I know nothing about what they believe other than what is noted in this book. And I just find it really interesting that that that's all they give us. So at some point I'm going to look more up on this, uh, Manchenism. I, I am not going to pronounce that well. Um, I'm, I'm going to look up that if, if you want to look up all of this, just go ahead, but I'm going to look up that. And if I, it's anything interesting, I'll come back with it. And at that point, that is the end of chapter two of introduction to romantic Satanism. Now, I'm going to spend time reading the third one, taking notes. It takes me quite a bit because I, I take a lot of notes. Um, I write almost as many notes as there are uh, almost as long as the chapters. Not quite. Probably about half or a quarter of the chapter length, I write notes. To the point where I, like, I kind of skimped a bit on some of the notes towards the end because I was getting way too note heavy. But given some time, I'm going to reread. Chapter 3, since I haven't read in a long time, take them notes, and we're going to return to it again, and we're going to talk about it again. So far, I'm going to be honest, I found this book more interesting than I remember. I do remember Chapter 2, the first half, I had less interest in because of Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke's comments flew right over my head. I didn't get what he was talking about, sublime. I didn't understand. Uh... Maybe I'll look up more on Edmund Burke in Sublime, and maybe uh, I'm better at listening to things than reading sometimes, so maybe I'll look a YouTube video up on it. So that's it for Chapter 2. It might be a week or two until we get to Chapter 3. But always note it in the show notes when we're going to be covering it. So thank you for that, and let's move on to the next uh, segment. And there seems to be no sign of intelligent life anywhere. So, while preparing for the podcast, I normally get into looking at news. I look at news from many different sites. I look at some of the mainstream sites. I look at some of the smaller sites. I look at things like Right Wing Watch for certain things. I look at the Friendly Atheist a lot for interesting stories. And this week, I saw something on the Friendly Atheist site that feels more... I want to talk about it alone than just throwing it in a news segment. And at first, it might not seem completely unreasonable for some people, and I understand why. And it might not seem dangerous, but it's a really bad idea 
and it has the potential to be actually really dangerous. And the idea is that teachers having body cameras. Now, the person who wants this, their point of view is that, hey, we have cops have them. Why shouldn't teachers? They're, they're both public servants. Kinda. I mean, one, cops carry guns and therefore can hurt people, and they have way more power than teachers. A teacher can't get you sent to jail, and they have not been known to be incredibly corrupt, and they are not part of a system that has a long history of purposely harming the unprivileged population. So, yeah, I mean, what's the difference, right? Well, a head of a Christian group named Nevada Family Alliance doesn't see the difference, and they're calling for these body cameras on teachers. And they believe that it's very important for parents to be able to have access to these cameras basically live, from what it sounds like, for reasons. Well, the reasons are spelt out very simply. See, they don't want things like social justice, critical race theory, and sex education taught. And they want to make sure that they're not taught to their children by being able to look at these cameras because they don't want the children learning anything that the parents might ne not necessarily believe in because, of course, as noted, the major difference between this and police body cams is the fact that I can't log in and look at a police body cam live. They want to do this. Yes, these people want just to be able to log in and just see what a teacher is teaching, which knowing what a teacher is teaching is not hard. Most states, you can go onto a state website and look at the uh, state curriculum. I, I don't even know how this would go. Well, okay, I can think of some really bad ways this would go. Parrots watching and texting the teacher or child about every little thing they don't like. Parents teaching text questions to students. Parents complaining that their child isn't being showed the right respect. So on and so forth. And I'm not even thinking about the reasons these people want the cameras yet. But even just th these little minor reasons are a complete disruption of the classroom. When we start getting into having to alter what we teach anytime a parent starts to complain and they have a live feed. Well, have you ever seen a Twitch chat? Combine that with the mentality of, can I see your manager? And really nothing would ever get done. These people who like to complain that their childs are being left behind and not learning what they should be learning. And you have different conflicts of interest between the parents who were constantly conflicting about what should be teaching and what should be teaching. We'll get to the point where, where nothing's being taught. But in my view, the friendly atheist, even though he touched on that aspect, Hemet doesn't really get what I think is the most dangerous part of this. Or at least he doesn't write it in the article, what I think is the most dangerous part of this. What really bothers me, it, it's not even single thi a single thing, but it can be lumped into a single comment. Parents, we know stuff about your child that you don't, and we would never tell you. You've heard us right. Us evil teachers are hiding shit from you, the parent, and we should always do that. We hide about the fact we know your child is in a same-sex relationship. Teachers aren't as blind as a lot of students think. If a child is dating so-and-so, I mean, considering that half the time so-and-so will come to the classroom and, cart and start causing a disruption, and students are not very good at hiding relationships, especially in a school where their guard is down. It's not that we're nosy. It's just the students are probably more comfortable at school than in their home, just being who they are sometimes. 
especially in certain schools where the atmosphere is really relaxed and it's very friendly to different types of views. Like many schools where I live in are very open to many different ways of life. And there are times teachers will come to an educator and tell us they're having a problem at home or they're having a problem with you, the parent particularly, and they don't know who to talk to. So they talk to us. They talk to us about how your shitty beliefs are ruining their lives. And we can't just tell them, don't worry about your parents' shitty relief beliefs because it's probably religious beliefs and therefore we'll get in a shit ton of trouble. We just have to tell them, or we have to come up with some diplomatic thing to say that is like, well, your parents believe one thing and that's not what everyone else believes and you can make up your own mind as you grow and become an adult. I mean, that, that's really the best we can offer. And sometimes, sometimes that good, that's good enough. And sometimes being in a school without their parents is very healthy for the child, especially when they know that we're not going to go run to the parent and tell hey, did you know that so-and-so might be gay or so-and-so might be this or like that, which is a bill that I don't remember what state wanted to pass, had wanted to pass a while ago, making teachers basically rats, which pissed me the fuck off. So no parent X, we are not going to tell you everything about your child. We are not going to let you tell us what they can and can't learn. No, you don't get to invade their privacy. As you say, we are invading theirs, which is kind of ridiculous, which is said in the article that this person wants the body cameras because teachers are invading the privacy and educators are invading the privacy of their students. No, we don't go to your job and watch you do your job and bother you and tell you how to do it. You, you don't get to do that. And from someone who is an educator and has worked with students who aren't always necessarily comfortable in their homes, to a parent who thinks like this, fuck you, and I hope your child gets as far away from you as they possibly can. And with that, it's time to wrap up. So I would like to thank you all for listening once again. This has been Why Satan, and of course, Hail Satan. You know, I really hate when it's hot out here, partly not because it's actually hot out, I mean, that sucks too, but the fact that my air conditioner is loud as fuck, and I keep needing to adjust it during the show, and I have to pause to adjust it to make sure it's not loud, it just pisses me off. I really need a new air conditioner. Rah. <laughs>